Thank you, Gleese, for that fine introduction. And thank you, Elaine, for having me back. And thank you all for being here. How many of you were here last year when I spoke about Franklin Roosevelt? OK. Um, how many of you remember what I said? <laughs> OK, well, for the, then I'll, for the few who do remember, I'll have to be careful. Um, I'm not so worried so much about repeating myself. I'm really wor mer worried more about contradicting myself. Uh, I'm delighted to be back. Uh, I value every opportunity to speak in connection with the Ford Museum and especially with the Howenstein Center. Glees Whitney is a real treasure for those of us who do presidential studies and uh, work in the field of presidential history. He's also one of the most effective entrepreneurs in the business of higher education. And you can tell this by the growth of the Howenstein Center over the five years that he's been the director. You can also see it in the way he packages and markets uh, lectures. I came up here intending to speak about Franklin Roosevelt. And I got this um, postcard in the mail <laughs> indicating that H.W. Brands was going to speak on this particular day, and the subject was going to be Barack Obama in history. <laughs> Gleaves follows the news, and he's seen what Barack Obama's approval rating is, so I figured it'll probably rub off on the events at the Howenstein Center. So, so <laughs> Barack Obama in history it is. <laughs> But I feel sort of like um, Lucy, the character in the, the Charlie Brown, the Peanuts uh, cartoons. And there's this, this one that I remember, it was one of the Sunday uh, comic strips, where Lucy has uh, prepared to take a test. Her geography class has been studying the states. And so she's all set to take a test on Iowa. She studied everything there is to know about Iowa. And so she knows the capital, the population, the principal industries, the history, you name it. She walks into the test, and the, the one question on the test is, what do you know about Idaho? <laughs> and she goes, oh my gosh, Idaho. So she thinks fast, and she writes down, Idaho is a very important and interesting state. Not to be confused with Iowa, <laughs> on which the principal industries are the capital of <laughs> So, Barack Obama <laughs> is probably an important, well, he's a historically important president already. Not to be confused with Frank and Roosevelt. But in fact, he already is being, shall I say, confused with Franklin Roosevelt, certainly being compared with Franklin Roosevelt. And this is where, this is where the lecture begins, sort of. Because there have been all sorts of parallels drawn between, well, not necessarily the performance of Barack Obama and the performance of Franklin Roosevelt, yet that remains to be seen. And when I saw the title Barack Obama in History, I thought, well, this will be a perfectly appropriate lecture to give in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. <laughs> because honestly, we don't know where Barack Obama is going to fit. Well, we won't know how he shapes up as a historical character. 
But in fact, we can place him in the longer context of American history. He, because, of course, history gets us to wherever we happen to be today. As I, I have students, I have graduate students who are apprentice historians, and, and they pick various historical projects to study. And I'm very open-minded about the sort of things that are appropriate for the, the study of history. And my general feeling is, is if it happened before yesterday, then it's history. Now, that's actually not entirely accurate. And I teach American history, and I teach various courses. I'm teaching a freshman class on, well, this is one where I'm actually being more honest than I sometimes am in, am in labeling my courses. This is a course that is called The Past, Present, and Future of American Foreign Policy. So we study American foreign policy from 1945 to the present, but then we project into the future and figure out, okay, where are we going to go? I teach survey classes in American history, and one version of the survey class goes from the end of the Civil War to the present. But like most of my colleagues who teach this part of the survey, most of us never get very close to the present. And partly this reflects the fact that historians are as lazy as anybody else, and most of us prepared this course anywhere from five years ago for the recent PhDs to 30 or 40 years ago for those who have been doing it a bit longer. And we really are loath to update the notes. No, actually, that's, that's, no, no, no. that's not really true. I exaggerate. No, what it comes down to is that those of us who have lived through events have a hard time often thinking of those events as history. So I first became sort of aware of the world around me in the 1960s. And for that reason, I have a harder time placing the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in history than I do placing the 1890s. I have a much harder time with the 1990s than I do with the 1890s. Because with the 1890s, I know, I know what it all led to. I know what was of lasting importance in the 1890s because we had enough time afterwards to tell. I do an exercise with my students, more precisely, I assign an exercise for my students. And what I have them do is I have them read newspapers for a particular week in history. Now, I used to, well, in fact, I still do with the, when I'm teaching more recent history. I have them read newspapers for the week in which they were born. Now, when I first started doing this, they were reading newspapers from the 1960s. Now they're reading newspapers from the 1990s. But the point of the exercise and, and for when I teach an earlier class, then I have them just pick a week in history. Um, just sort of throw a dart at a, an old calendar. But the point that I want them to understand is that what is news, what is current events, might or might not be history in the sense of having lasting historical importance. So there are two parts to this exercise. Part one is to identify something during the week that they're reading about that was a big story at the time that, that, that didn't, doesn't make the history books. Now this is the fairly easy part of the exercise because if you pick any particular week 
uh, let's say it's a week during the 1870s, or that matter, a week during the early 1990s. There are going to be stories that seemed important at the time, but didn't have any lasting effect. And so students, it's easy to pick this story or that story or that story. And so they, they read the newspapers, and then they pick up, it might be the textbook that we're using, or some other work of history, and they say, here it is in the newspapers, it's not there in the textbooks. Okay, part one of the exercise has been achieved. That's the easy part. The hard part of the exercise is to reverse this, to find a story that's reported in the textbooks, in the history books, that's not reported at the time. Now, some of the students find this impossible. And depending on the week they choose, and on their, what, historical acuity, yeah, it might be pretty difficult. But it does happen. And sometimes, to, to give them an example, I'll have them read newspapers from June 1972. And in June 1972, especially if you take the early part of the month, there was no reporting, the early part of the month, there was no reporting on the bugging of the Democratic National Headquarters, National Campaign Office, in the Watergate building. Now this was something that actually had happened already, but until the burglars were caught, it didn't make the news. There's another example, and now that one might seem maybe a little bit contrived because there was this secret that nobody knew about. But there are other events that aren't secret, they're public events, but they just don't seem important at the time. But they later appear to be pretty important. In 1882, Congress passed the first immigration law in American history, and it barred the immigration of Chinese laborers. It's commonly called the Chinese Exclusion Act. That is, it's called the Chinese Exclusion Act in textbooks. And it's in every textbook of American history that covers the 1880s. So every broad survey has coverage on the Chinese Exclusion Act. I've had a number of students read newspapers from that period. And they, it's not covered. It's just not in there at all. It didn't seem to be a big deal. It wasn't much of a story. Okay. The reason I say all this is by preface to having to confess that I have no idea what the historical significance of Barack Obama's presidency is going to be. <laughs> now, I can say this. I do know that, well, depend, if he does nothing else in his presidency, if his first term proves to be a flop and he's not reelected, then the line in the history books about him will be first African-American president. And that's historic right there. So he's already carved out a niche in history. But of course, he has, I, I hope, and I certainly think, much grander ambitions. He wants to be a great president. I think, well, I don't know this for a fact, but I have a hunch that nearly every president wants to be a great president. The one, the one possible exception that comes immediately to their mind might be Gerald Ford, who was at least, you know, he came into the office differently than other presidents. People who get elected president, they have to at some point think, you know, I'm pretty much the best thing going. And that's why people should vote for me. Now, actually, I say that only half flippantly. Because when I say the best thing going, I, in addition to teaching my undergraduates, I, I often teach, or at least, I don't exactly teach, I speak to a group of, do they have 
Do they have boys' state and girls' state in Michigan? Yes. Okay, so these are high school students who have an interest in politics. And they come to, in Texas, they come to Austin, the state capital, and they create this sort of shadow or mock government. And these are, the, these are the kids who really take politics seriously. And when they come to Austin, I usually I talk to them pretty much every year. And I ask a question of them, but I also ask to my own undergraduates. I ask them, how many of you want to be president someday? Now, I teach a, an undergraduate class at the University of Texas about this size. And in a group this size of, what are there, 250 people in here or so? Roughly, okay. I'll bet not, uh, Four or five people will raise their hand. Young undergraduates will raise their hand. And those who do are usually kind of looking around <laughs> as if, <laughs> are people going to think that I'm really impressed with myself if I raise my hand? Um, and I say, come on, come on, be honest. And maybe I get a couple more hands up, but no more than that. When I ask the question to the, the boys' state and the girls' state, three quarters of the group, they raise their hand. <laughs> but I tell them, I tell my students, and I tell them, you might think that putting yourself up to be president, or at least you know, say, announcing you're going to run for president, would betray a real kind of, what, grandiosity in your personality, maybe even something approaching hubris? Well, except it might. It might if you thought that announcing for the presidency somehow was an indication that you thought you had all the qualifications necessary to be president. And it's a daunting office. And there's nobody who has all the skills, all the talents, all the experience required to do the job really right. But that's not the question. The question always comes down to, am I better qualified than those other people who are running? And that's a comparative question that all sorts of people answer in the affirmative, if you consider all the people who run for president. Anyway, so Barack Obama in history. How many of you watch or listen to the inaugural address? OK, it really was a historic moment. And as you know, there were millions of people on the mall in Washington who wanted to be part of that particular experience. I was listening to it sort of with the, the ear of, the eye and the ear of a presidential historian. And in part because I had been, I've been asked to, to do a comment on the inaugural address by ABC News. And we were going to do an interview afterwards, so I was going to listen very carefully and try to come up with something insightful to say. <laughs> but I had to tell them that the address was going to occur uh, during one of my classes, January 20th was the first day of class in the spring semester at the University of Texas. And my class, my freshman class, meets at 11 o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. Now 11 Central, 12 Eastern. So as we were having our very first class, Barack Obama was being sworn in for the presidency at this extremely historic moment. And one of my enterprising or bold students emailed me in advance saying, Professor Brands, I really want to see the inaugural address. Why don't you call off class so we can watch it at home? Well, I've heard that one before. <laughs> so I said, no, no, we're all going to watch it in class. Now, 
I'm not sure how this auditorium is wired up, but the classrooms at the University of Texas are all wired for the internet. And so there's a screen with an internet projector and all this. And I first thought then, okay, what we'll do is we'll watch it on the internet because I knew that CNN, CNN.com was going to have a live video internet feed and so on. So I thought that would be good. And I was all set to do it. But then at the last minute, I thought, you know, this is such a historic event that I wouldn't be surprised if the, the internet site crashes, if there are too many people who are trying to get on it. In fact, that's exactly what happened. But I was clever enough <laughs> that I anticipated this. And I thought, television. Now, the University of Texas has gone beyond television in its, inter in its digital and high-tech connections. So there was no TV available. So, so I brought from home my own television, a little black and white TV, 12-inch diagonal that I bought at Kmart in 1975. And so the room was something like this, longer and narrower, but there was a stage in front. And there was no pitch to the, the seating, so the seats were all flat. So in order to get the TV up off of the above ground level, I took a table that was maybe about like this, about this high, and I pulled it over on the stage. And that got a little higher, but I thought, no, I can do better than that. So I took a, a folding chair. Those over here, and I put a chair on the table, and then I put the TV up on the chair. So here's this little TV screen. The audio was okay. The video was pretty fuzzy. And what made it more interesting was that, as I say, I was going to be interviewed by ABC News. And so they wanted to, I said, okay, I'm, I can't talk to you right after the, the address because I'm going to be in the middle of a class. They said, oh, you're going to be teaching a class. Do you mind if we send a camera crew around the class? I said, sure, why not? So the ABC camera's rolling, and most of the time they're, you know, they're looking at the students who are looking, they're kind of figuring out what in the world they're looking. They pan around and they see the latest high-tech application at the University of Texas. So anyway, that's how we watched the inaugural address. And I was listening to it with an ear for history. I'm a historian. And I knew perfectly well that Barack Obama's speechwriters would read, well, I knew that they would say they read all the inaugural addresses of presidents previously. Now, I know perfectly well they didn't because whoever read the inaugural address of Millard Fillmore? <laughs> Actually, as I thought about this, and as I reacted to Barack Obama's address, I thought that, please, maybe we should get together on this, that there is a great volume to be written on wonderful presidential speeches that no one ever remembers. Now, the reason I say this is that my, well, I'll give you my bottom line conclusion of the inaugural address. And that is, this is what historians always say. Um, in fact, Edward Gibbon, who wrote, uh, is most best known for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The book was published in the 1770s, in the late 18th century. And he's writing about events primarily that occurred between 1,500 and 1,200 years before. So he's got a millennium of perspective. And he was asked, 
Mr. Given, what do you see as the long-term significance of the Roman Empire? And his answer was, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> well, that was my answer about what was the importance of Barack Obama's inaugural address. And honestly, I had to say, it's too soon to tell. And the reason I say this is, inaugural addresses are not remembered for the eloquence of the message. They're not remembered for the glowing phrases or the call to patriotism or any of that stuff. They're remembered for what happened next. And great inaugural addresses are addresses given by great presidents. That's the way we basically play this game. That is, we look at who the great presidents are, we look at the important things that followed the address, then we go back and look at the address itself. And we assume that the great things that followed must have some connection to, well, we'll now define them as the great things that were said. But on the day after, it's impossible to know whether this was a really good address or not. We don't even know, even if we suspect that it's a historically important address, we don't know what history is going to pull out of the address as the one line everybody remembers. For example, I wrote a book about Franklin Roosevelt. His most important, his most remembered speech was his first inaugural address. And the line that everybody remembers now, the one that's quoted in all of the textbooks, and it's quoted, in, quoted in my book too, is the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That wasn't what led the coverage of the inaugural address the next day. Much more emphasis would, was placed on a couple of other aspects of it. One was Roosevelt's singling out of Wall Street, what he called the money changers. The people who got us into this horrible mess we're in today. This is March 1933. And a lot of editorialists thought, oh my gosh. It was one thing for Roosevelt to go after Wall Street during the campaign. You know, that's what you expect of presidential candidates. But president now, for heaven's sakes, he's starting off on a very combative, even divisive mood. And the second thing that Roosevelt asked for, this is what he asked for, the second thing that he said, was he likened the crisis, the crisis in 1933, to a war. And he asked for the equivalent of war powers to lead the country through this emergency. Now, that's a very different kind of tone than the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. If you listen to that, it sounds as though here's this guy who comes into office and is trying to calm the mood of the country. But that's not what got the attention of the press the next day. What got the attention of the press was this very combative rhetoric about the money changers and likening the current situation to war. Good heavens, he's scaring the daylights out of Americans. Okay, when I was listening to Barack Obama's speech, I heard echoes of Abraham Lincoln when he was talking about, now I, now I can't remember the exact wording, but Lincoln spoke of the better angels of our nature. And Obama talked about the better side of our history or something like that. There were echoes of John Kennedy when he talked about this generation. Kennedy talked about the torch has been passed to a new generation. There were echoes of Franklin Roosevelt 
when he spoke of this nagging fear that has held us back. There were echoes of, he went beyond former presidents, echoes of Martin Luther King, when he talked about this dream he has of America. Well, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking how presidents, or let's say new presidents, like to set, I think usually, a high standard for themselves. They would hope to be thought of in the company of the great presidents of history. And so the greatest presidents of history is measured by polls done by the Poundstein Center and various other groups. The greatest presidents in American history, again and again, are there three. You know who the top three presidents in American history is, as the polls have shown for years and years? Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and George Washington. Now, if you think about why those presidents are identified as the great presidents, if Barack Obama's speechwriters had thought really carefully about wanting to be associated with, I don't think there was any reference, I didn't catch any reference to George Washington, but certainly to Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And there was this effort to link Barack Obama, his new presidency, to the presidencies of Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. And one can understand why. Because these are really the two great presidents. I, I think George Washington gets something of a pass on this because he was father of his country and everything. But in terms of, you know, really, and he was the first, so a lot of things that he did, sometimes even by accident, became precedents. And, but it's really Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt that are the models. But this falls in the category of be very careful what you wish for. Because why is it that Lincoln is considered such a great president. It's because he led the United States through this great crisis. And what was happening when Abraham Lincoln gave his first inaugural address? The country was falling apart. A civil war was beginning. Now, if you think about, would you want to be president under circumstances like that? Do any of you read The Onion, the satirical newspaper? On the day of the inauguration, there was a headline, Black Man Given Worst Job in America. <laughs> and in fact, it really captured the, well, let's call it the challenge and the opportunity that Barack Obama faced and continues to face. It's a cha the challenge is that the country is in, shall we say, distress. I wouldn't say the country is in crisis, but distress has this capacity to become crisis. The financial system is perhaps in crisis. The crisis hasn't spread through the rest of the economy, although I realize I'm speaking here in Michigan, and maybe it's gotten to the crisis stage here and in a couple of other states. I'm from Oregon, and the unemployment rate in Oregon, I think, is fourth highest in the country. It's about 10%. What is it in Michigan? Okay, so. Double digits is serious stuff. And you know, so parts of the country probably reached the critical stage, but the country as a whole has not. And so Barack Obama has the opportunity to be, to be in that same category with Lincoln and with Franklin Roosevelt. But if he's going to get there, he has to have this kind of ambivalence toward exactly what happens. Suppose, suppose everything goes right from here on out. 
Suppose the stock market rally of the last several days continues. Suppose that um, the unemployment rate goes down. So we've seen the worst of it. So suppose the banking system stabilizes. And suppose from here on out things get better. Okay. How will history view Barack Obama? What do you think? Will he be ranked up there with Lincoln? With Franklin Roosevelt? I suspect not. Because maybe, and historians will decide, sort of this is what historians do. Samuel Butler once said that even God cannot change history. Only historians can. <laughs> Which is why God allows historians to continue to exist. So in fact, let's suppose this outcome that I've described actually transpires. Then what will historians say about Barack Obama in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Will he be ranked with Lincoln in FDR? I think not. Because there will be no great crisis overcome. Maybe they will say, okay, he inherited this troubled economy and he undertook some steps early on. He got Congress to pass this financial stimulus package and maybe they'll include the first budget or something like that. And the, the really bad stuff that people thought might happen didn't happen. And maybe that was through his astute management of the economy. Maybe. I think more likely they'll say, you know, it was Ben Bernanke who did it. <laughs> or even if they say it was Obama who gets credit, there's much less credit that's acquired historically for bad things averted rather than cri actually full-blown crises that are overcome. So if you're Barack Obama, if you're, I don't know, maybe there's, I don't know, do people have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder? Um, do we have that good and the bad part of our, our souls, our better angels of our nature, and I guess the worse angels? What's Barack Obama rooting for? Is he rooting for things getting better all of a sudden? Well, I hope so. I hope he is, and I'm sure that he probably is. At this point, I suspect that he is not thinking of his place in history. He's probably thinking of the Democrats' place in the elections of next year, and maybe his place in the election of 2012. In terms of history, I really hope he's not, well, I don't know. Because you know, one of the problems of American politics is that it tends to be really short term. The, the horizons are relatively short. Why is it that there is a serious growing problem with the social security system? And that the Medicare system is going to be way out of balance some years down the road. Why is this? Because there is this problem that is going to create pain for the political system way out there. But fixing the problem will require pain right here and now, more precisely, pain between now and the next election. And it's so tempting, it's irresistibly tempting, to say, ah, let's just put that off a little bit. Let's just put that off a little bit. And you keep putting these things off, and the problem gets harder to resolve. So anyway, whatever Barack Obama wants, as a historian, if I'm trying to, to imagine 
the scenario by which Barack Obama will be seen as a really great president, then I gotta tell you that things are gonna have to get worse before they get better. Because they're not bad enough now to put him in that real pantheon of great leaders. Okay, now having said that, I've been asked over the last several months, what, what connections I see between the example of Franklin Roosevelt and the current ongoing experience of Barack Obama? Are there lessons from Franklin Roosevelt for Barack Obama? And my flippant answer is yes, there are. We just aren't quite sure which the lessons are. It's sort of like the ad executive who admitted that 50% of, 50 cents of every dollar spent on advertising is wasted. It's just that nobody knows which 50 cents. And so I mean, the reason I say that is history is full of lessons. But we don't know what lessons apply to the present in the present. We only know what lessons apply to the present after the present becomes the past. I'm going to give you an example that, we, that came up at lunch today that we were talking about. And this has to do with, what shall I say, the lasting contribution of the New Deal to American life. And, by extrapolation, potentially the lasting contribution of whatever Barack Obama's agenda comes to be called. There's no label for it yet. There, actually, there was a label for Roosevelt's agenda even before the 1932 election. The New Deal was a label that was affixed to it because Roosevelt used the phrase in one of his campaign speeches. Now, nobody knew exactly what the New Deal was going to entail at the time he said it, but all the stuff that he did on the domestic front came to be categorized as the New Deal. There were various aspects of the New Deal and they can be put in different sort of categories. And I would say they were put, put in different categories by historians. They weren't put in these different boxes by Roosevelt or by the New Deal Congress. But they, they fall in the category generally of relief, recovery, and reform. Maybe the three R's kind of go together. But relief is, what do you do to relieve the suffering of people, of the American people, in 1933? In 1933, when Roosevelt was, when Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated, the unemployment rate in the United States was probably about 25%. This is a rough approximation. The data for the period really weren't very good at the time, haven't gotten much better in retrospect. But 25% seems perfectly reasonable. The GDP had fallen by about 25% from 1929. The stock market had lost 90% of its value. Millions of Americans were homeless. People were going hungry. There wasn't much out-and-out out starvation, but there was a lot of malnutrition, which led to disease and premature death. So the nation was in great distress. The financial system of the country was in a state of free fall. Commercial banks, the banks that you have your deposits in, were collapsing by the hundreds every week. The first thing that Roosevelt did upon becoming president was to declare a nice euphemism. I'm not sure who first thought of it. It wasn't Roosevelt. It was one of the governors of, there were several states that declared what they called bank holidays. Now what this was, was a decision by the government to close all the banks. 
The banks were vulnerable to what were called runs on the bank, where people literally ran down to the bank to get their money out of the bank. And under the best of circumstances, banks, every bank is a bankruptcy waiting to happen. Because banks borrow short. That is, they borrow from people on a short-term basis. You put money in the bank. The bank is borrowing from you. And the deal is, you can turn around the next day and pull your money out. I think this is actually, this isn't technically true. How many, I don't, I don't think they still give, do, how many of you remember having a savings account book when you were young? Okay, there you go. I remember this. And a savings account, remember, a savings account was different than a checking account. And do you remember the fine print in the front of the book? It said that the bank could insist on 90 days notice before it paid you back the money in a savings account. Whereas a checking account, which is technically called a demand deposit, they had they got to pay on demand. And the difference was, traditionally, was that a savings account paid interest. And a checking account traditionally did not. And so the difference was the bank didn't have to pay you back your savings account money right away. In fact, they typically did. So banks borrow short, but they lend long. They take your money and they loan it out to somebody who wants to buy a car and has to pay back over three years. They loan it out to somebody who wants to buy a house and pays it back over 30 years. So that the money you put in the bank today is not in the bank's vault tomorrow. It's not there. It's out in the community and it doesn't have to come back for a period of years. So if you change your mind, if something spooks you, if you lose your job, then you run down to the bank. That's why they're called runs. You run down to the bank and you demand your money. And if you're one of the first ones there, there's money there and you get it back. But if you're not, then money isn't there and you lose your money. And millions of Americans lost their life savings when the banks went bankrupt. Roosevelt following the lead of governors in about 15 states said, we're just closing down the banks, we're locking the doors, you can't even ask for your money out. That was the only way to save the banks. If the banks are closed by federal law, then there's no way to have a run on the bank. The problem isn't the banks anymore, the problem is the federal government. So Roosevelt then got Congress, the New Deal Congress, called Congress to an emergency session. And the first order of business was to pass an emergency banking act, which was Roosevelt's equivalent of, what, the creation of the TARP fund the government's efforts to stabilize the banking system. Now, and in fact, the, the, the act was passed, the government closed down the weakest banks, and this is, now Ben Bernanke is a student of the Great Depression, and he studied lots about Roosevelt's policy, and the things that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and the Roosevelt administration, Hoover administration and the Roosevelt administration did wrong. And so he's determined not to repeat the mistakes of the Roosevelt administration, or the Hoover administration. But this brings to mind a statement that was attributed to Henry Kissinger. When Henry Kissinger became Secretary of State, and he was Secretary of State for Richard Nixon and for Gerald Ford, and um, at a press conference, he, uh, you'll forgive my imitation, but anyway, he said, we will not repeat the mistakes of our predecessors. We will make our own mistakes. 
Well, in fact, that's what happens. You learn from history, and you learn how to avoid the mistakes of your predecessors. But you don't learn infallibly how to avoid mistakes. Anyway, the bank, the Emergency Banking Act was passed, and it did stabilize the banks. Oh, but the key to stabilizing the banking system wasn't so much the Banking Act itself. That had a lot to do with it. That created these structural reforms. Banks were closed down, and government money was injected into the banking system. But the key to making it all work was Franklin Roosevelt's first fireside chat. Roosevelt, Roosevelt was, I'm going to say this, knowing that fans of Abraham Lincoln might differ with me, fans of Ronald Reagan might differ with me, I'm going to say that Franklin Roosevelt was really the great communicator as an American president. And I say this, first I'm going to ask a question of this audience. I have to be a little bit careful trying to estimate the age of people in the audience. How many of you can remember where you were when, Frank, when you heard that Franklin Roosevelt died? Okay. I'm just from the looks of the I'm going to say that you were all no more than three years old when that happened. But in fact, it was something of a collective, well, shock would be to put it maybe mildly. There was this feeling on the part of millions of Americans that a member of the family had died. This was partly because Roosevelt had been president so long. He'd been president for 12 years, longer than any president before him, and unless the Constitution is changed again, longer than any president after him. Now it's unconstitutional, you can only get elected twice. But the other reason is, well, I'll give you two more reasons. An another reason is that Roosevelt had led the country through the dark years of the Depression and then the scary and challenging years of World War II. So Americans felt they had gone through a lot with Franklin Roosevelt. But the last thing is, and the thing that tied this all together was, Americans felt they knew Franklin Roosevelt. They knew him in a personal way that Americans had not known a president before Roosevelt. And partly this was the nature of Roosevelt's personality, but it was also the melding of his personality with the principal broadcast medium of his day, radio. And Roosevelt's fireside chats, of those people who remember where you were when Franklin Roosevelt died, do any of you recall listening at the time to any of Roosevelt's fireside chats? Okay? For the rest of you, I recommend you can go on the internet and you can hear Roosevelt's fireside chats. And if you listen to them, with an, the best way to listen to them, and I've done this, is as most people, I don't say most, but very many people listened to them when they were given the first time. The fireside chats were typically given on Sunday evening, 10 o'clock Eastern time, 7 o'clock on the West Coast. The four radio networks at the time preempted all other broadcasting. If you had your radio on, you were listening to Franklin Roosevelt. And a lot of people, especially on this first one, the first fireside chat occurred at the end of the first week of Roosevelt's presidency. Congress had just passed this Emergency Banking Act. The banks were scheduled to reopen the next morning. They were going to open in a three-day cycle. So the first banks were going to open on Monday morning, the next banks on Tuesday, the banks after that on Wednesday. 
Congress had passed this legislation that was supposed to stabilize the banking system. But Roosevelt understood that institutional fixes could only go so far. The whole issue was, the center of the issue was, the confidence of the people, of American people, of ordinary depositors in the banking system. Now, he knew that they had no confidence in the banking system, and with good reason, because the banking system had failed them again and again. So what Roosevelt did was to try to get the American people to have confidence in him and then to take his word that the banking system was going to be okay. He went on the air. This was on March, the middle of March, 1933. It was a cold winter then, like I gather it's been a cold winter here in Michigan. And a lot of people, because this was in the middle of the Depression, when money was tight, a lot of people to save on fuel had already turned off the heat in their houses for the night. And they were huddled under their blankets in the dark, listening to the radio. And when I was a kid, I used to sneak a transistor radio to bed with me. So I could listen to, I grew up in Oregon, and I was a fan of Oregon State. And I would listen to the Oregon State Beaver basketball games. And I remember with the, the, the transistor radio beside me, under the covers, because I wasn't supposed to be listening to this, and it was just, I got to know Bob Blackburn, who was the voice of the Beavers, like he really was a member of the family. And I was transported, and I could envision the whole thing. I could see the game playing out. Well, it was very much like this when Americans on that March night, this is the first time they have heard their president speak directly to them. And this was one of the secrets of the fireside chats. Roosevelt, when he gave his inaugural address, he knew that most people were, it was in the middle of their busy day. And there were lots of other things. He also knew that there would be all sorts of editorial comment, be surrounded by reports of the inauguration. This was Roosevelt speaking directly to the American people almost not as president so much as sort of uh, wise uncle. And people listened to his voice coming over the radio in the dark. And they just had this voice to go on. Now, I'm going to digress just a little bit here to point out that there was no television in those days. Most people had seen pictures of Franklin Roosevelt, photographs. Photography was well-developed. They saw pictures of Roosevelt in the newspaper. They were still pictures. They saw the occasional newsreel. These were short film clips, almost the equivalent of the YouTube clips that you can see of this, that, or the other thing. But they were edited. And so it was, it, there was nothing like live, live video coverage of things. So people had this picture of Roosevelt but it was Roosevelt clearly at a distance. But radio, all of a sudden, this was Roosevelt up close and personal. There's something else. Roosevelt came along. He was part of that first generation of politicians who could speak with electronic amplification, including over the radio, but also in auditoriums. Every generation before Roosevelt, from you pick your famous Greek orator Demosthenes to William Jennings Bryan, had been effective as a public figure, at least in part, 
for having a big voice, a stadium voice, a voice that was once described to me when I was on a book tour and doing a bunch of radio interviews, an AM voice. This is in contrast to the FM voices. I did lots of interviews on FM. And I was, uh, my host in this particular city said, now you're going to really like this guy, uh, but I have to tell you, um, he's got an AM voice. And I had no idea what this person was telling me until I had been on the, the radio circuit for a while. And most of my interviews were on like public radio stations, which are FM. And it's in the nature of public radio for some reason that the hosts all speak rather softly. <laughs> Whereas, I met this guy, says, how you doing? Great to see you. Ah, that's an AM voice. Well, the politicians all had to have AM voices, stadium voices, or as your preschool teacher would say, your outdoor voices. Let's try your indoor voice now. <laughs> Roosevelt was a master of the indoor voice because he knew that he could speak directly directly into the microphone and it would be as though he was just right next to you and he could get his message across. And so partly it was his tone of voice, partly it was his understanding of how this new medium worked. He realized that when people listened to him, they became collaborators in the message because in the same way that reading a novel as opposed to watching a movie, requires you to imagine the characters. Whereas when you see the movie, there's nothing to imagine. It's all there in front of you. Likewise, radio requires you to imagine the person behind the voice. Television, there's nothing to imagine. The voice is all, the, the picture is all there. Oh, I'll digress briefly again. How many presidents have we had who were confined to a wheelchair? Who had a, an obvious physical disability? One, Franklin Roosevelt. Is this just coincidence? Is it, was it Franklin Roosevelt's, what shall we say? Well, I would certainly hesitate to say that it's anybody's good luck to contract polio and become a paraplegic. But if you had to contract polio and become a paraplegic, was it Roosevelt's good luck for that to happen in the age of radio? I put it to you. Do you think that somebody could get elected president of the United States today from a wheelchair? I don't know the answer to this. And I can see arguments on both sides where, I don't know, we like somebody to project a strong image. On the other hand, one could say, boy, he or she's got a lot of grit to overcome this disability. Anyway, with Franklin Roosevelt on the radio, no one knew no one cared. No one even thought about whether this guy had a disability or not. They couldn't see it. And all they could hear was the voice. And it's this magnificent radio voice. And I suppose if I were better adapted technologically at this point, I would play a clip of Roosevelt's voice for you. You'll have to take my word for it. But you can go on the internet and you can hear it. But it wasn't just the voice and it wasn't just his understanding that there were all these people huddled under the covers listening to him waiting for some reason to have hope. Roosevelt, in 14 and a half minutes, that's how long the first fireside chat lasted. The longest, I think, was 35 minutes. But this one was short, 14 and a half minutes. And in the 14 and a half minutes, Roosevelt explained 
the banking industry, how banking works. What I said just a moment ago, how banks borrow money on a short-term basis and they lend it out on a long-term basis, and how this leaves all of them potentially vulnerable to losses of confidence. He explained how the banking system had failed over the previous several months. He explained what Congress and the administration had done to alleviate the problem. He explained the timetable for opening the banks over the next three days. And then he came to the heart of his message. He said that everything that we have done in Washington, everything that my administration has done, everything Congress has done, will be for nothing without the support, without the confidence of you, the American people. Without your support, he said, we cannot succeed. With your support, we cannot fail. It was the most remarkable transformation in the public mindset that I can think of in American political history. For the previous several months, Americans had been pulling their money out of banks as fast as they could. The next morning when the banks began to open, people decided that they would vote their confidence in Roosevelt by putting their money back in the banks. And within a week, the banking crisis had been resolved. Now that's the banking crisis. And it was a remarkable piece of political work. It was a remarkable piece of political theater. Because you know, Roosevelt had to play this role. He had to convey this sense of confidence. Did he really feel the confidence? Boy, if he did, he was probably crazy. But he had to act as though he did. Now, this is all. There's another aspect to Roosevelt in terms of acting the part. When I was writing my book, uh, the, the title of the book is Traitor to His Class. But while I was working on the book, I had this other model in mind. I had a working another working title. And the working title was Command Performance. And I can talk about the command part, but the performance is what I want to emphasize here. I became convinced that Franklin Roosevelt succeeded in large part because he understood the performance aspect of the presidency. He understood that Americans expect something. They expect certain things out of their presidents. And if you can deliver those things effectively, then you have a chance to succeed. If you cannot, then you're doomed to fail. Now, if times are relatively placid and peaceful, your failure might not be particularly egregious. But in times of crisis, then you will get nowhere at all, and you'll get worse than nowhere. Herbert Hoover was one who didn't know how to play the role of the crisis presidency. He would have been a great president if he'd been elected in 1920 rather than in 1928. If the prosperity of the 20s had been on his watch, then I think he would be considered one of the near great presidents up there with Theodore Roosevelt. He had all sorts of qualifications and experience. But it was his bad luck that the stock market crashed and the economy swooned while he was president. And he wasn't equipped to deal with it. Roosevelt understood that one of the things you have to do is convey this sense of confidence, whether you believe it or not. When Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, I'm not going to say he was exactly lying through his teeth, but any reasonable person would say, what do you mean the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? We've got lots of things to fear, starting with the collapse of the economy, the huge unemployment rate, and the rise of fascism overseas. 
There's lots to worry about. Roosevelt once had Orson Welles, the White House, Orson Welles, the Hollywood actor and director, the boy wonder of Hollywood. And Roosevelt took him aside and said, Orson, I hope you realize that you and I are the two finest actors in America. <laughs> and I think that Roosevelt was perfectly sincere in this. Now, you might infer from that 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 means that Roosevelt was insincere when he was giving his speeches. What do you mean? It's just an act. No, no. It wasn't just an act. But in the same way that a violin virtuoso can be a brilliant musician, but also if that musician is going to be effective before audiences, has to learn to be a performer. It's one thing to play in your own studio, but then to play before a large group and get the large group to appreciate your gift and your interpretation of the music. That requires understanding what the role of the musical performer is. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that Roosevelt understood what being president was all about, how to act the role of a president. He, Roosevelt was perfectly sincere in his endorsement of various New Deal projects, but he knew that it was more than that. Herbert Hoover was sincere as could be, but he didn't know how to carry off the role. Okay, I think I've got a number of loose ends here, and I'm not quite sure where to start tying them up. Oh, I know. Um, what advice, yeah, I was about to get to this. What advice would Franklin Roosevelt give to Barack Obama? Or, well, Franklin Roosevelt's not here to give advice, so I'm going to speak on his behalf. <laughs> Historians have to be careful speaking on behalf of dead presidents. Although, well, sometimes presidents aren't quite as dead as we sometimes think. I gave a lecture in Chicago about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And I was going to talk about Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I was going to talk about the difficult personal relationship they had. And it is, it's one of the most, what shall I say, fascinating, <coughs> sometimes heartening, sometimes dismaying stories in American public life. And it, in, part of it was played out in public. It was known that Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt did not spend much time together. In fact, somebody at the Washington Post, during it was either in the late 30s or early 40s, was once mischievously inclined to write a headline that said, News Flash, Mrs. Roosevelt spends night at White House. Because she spent so few nights at the White House. She was always gone. It was understood that theirs was a, shall we say, kind of loose relationship. Well, without going into the details of what it was that made the relationship kind of distant. It was distant emotionally at one level, but there was it was very complicated, to say the least. And if somebody would ask a question, I could get into the complications. But the one thing that I will say is, be, to this audience in Chicago, I was going to go into the complications. And these are complications that I was quite comfortable talking about when the subjects were dead and gone. Just before I was going to go on, I was introduced to this tall, very striking-looking woman who was probably 75 years old. And 
she was introduced to me and she said, I've come to your lecture, I'm very interested. And she was introduced to me as Anna Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> the granddaughter of Eleanor Roosevelt, whose given name was Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, <coughs> and whose mother was Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, whose daughter was Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, and, as it turns out, whose granddaughter was Anna Eleanor Roosevelt. And so, the current Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was sitting in the front row. <laughs> and I did not have the nerve to give the lecture that I was prepared to give. So I talked about Roosevelt's leadership in World War II. <laughs> we historians have to be careful, as I say, saying too much about the private lives of presidents. Gleaves knows the name Arthur Link. Arthur S. Link was an eminent presidential historian. More precisely, he was an eminent historian of Woodrow Wilson a longtime professor at Princeton University, where Wilson himself had been a longtime professor and president of the university before he went off into politics, became governor of New Jersey, and then president of the United States. Link was the editor of Wilson's papers. And as the editor of Wilson's papers, he had an inside view of Woodrow Wilson. And he knew things about Woodrow Wilson that other historians did not know. Now, he was editing the papers, and they were all going to be published, and they eventually were published in what is really, I think, the gold standard of a publication, a published series of presidential papers. It's the papers of Woodrow Wilson, Princeton University Press. And Arthur Link, over the years, became so closely, what shall I say, connected to Woodrow Wilson, became so emotionally invested in Woodrow Wilson that others in the historical profession began to think that Link somehow believed he was channeling the spirit of Woodrow Wilson. Now this was, this was okay, I guess. This kind of thing happens. You work on a president for 40 years and yeah, you become connected. But there was a moment that became a little bit embarrassing. Well, sort of. I'll tell you. This is what happened. Now, I wasn't there, but a good friend and former colleague of mine was there, and she was a very close friend of Arthur Link. And she tells the story with great glee. Arthur Link was this very proper Princeton president. Never went anywhere, certainly not to work, but I don't even think he went down to the kitchen to get a midnight snack without a coat and tie on. And so he attended conferences of historians, and there was this one conference of historians where the historians were all talking about the private lives of presidents. And somehow, discussion came around to, well, I mean, what about the, the sex lives of presidents? And it was known that Warren Harding, for example, had a mistress in the White House. This was before Bill Clinton became president. <laughs> And historians were just beginning to learn that John Kennedy had had a number of affairs and that Lyndon Johnson had had various affairs. But some people, because Arthur Link was there, and because he was this sort of stiff, rather proper individual, a very tall, distinguished-looking guy with this shock of white hair that he combed straight back, somebody decided, well, whether it was to tease Arthur Link a little bit, or simply to state what seemed to be conventional wisdom, said, 
Well, the one person we can be sure didn't have any affairs was Woodrow Wilson. Because Woodrow Wilson had this public persona as a rigid Presbyterian, and he often acted as though he took his orders directly from God rather than from political advisors or anything like that. When Wilson was elected, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee came up to him and said, now, Mr. President-elect, there have been a number of people who have worked very hard for the success of your campaign. And Wilson was supposed to draw the conclusion from this and, well, because they had contributed to his election, they expected to be remembered when the jobs were handed out. And Wilson stood up and looked this Democratic chairman in the eye and said, I have you know that God made me President of the United States. Now, whether he actually believed it or not, or this was just his way of saying, forget it, I'm not paying any favors. So anyway, Wilson has this reputation of being this rather stiff individual. And to imagine, to imagine Woodrow Wilson having any kind of affairs outside of his marriage, just no, no. Well, Arthur Link, at this point, now Arthur Link knew more about Wilson's correspondence, about Wilson's diaries and everything else, than anybody else did because he had them and he hadn't published them all yet. And Arthur Link stood up. This was kind of around a lunch table. This wasn't in one of the formal sessions. Around a lunch table. He stood up and in this booming voice, first of all, standing up kind of got the attention of everybody. And then he said, I'll have you know that Woodrow Wilson was the sexiest president in American history. Hey, what do you do with this? Well, in fact, what you did with it was, eventually Link did publish the correspondence and it became apparent that Wilson indeed had had an extramarital affair. And in fact, this is one of those cases where when Bill Clinton was president, and he was having this dalliance with Monica Lewinsky. There were some people who wondered how he could keep his mind on his work while he was otherwise engaged. Um, but apparently, he was able to compartmentalize, and that's when this term became popular during the 1990s. Wilson had a really hard time compartmentalizing, and in fact, Wilson, now this wasn't his extramarital affair, but after Wilson's first wife died, Wilson then fell head, fell head over heels in love with Edith Galt, who became his second wife. And in the middle of the Lusitania crisis of 1915, when America was on the verge of war, Wilson was spending part of his time dealing with the German ambassador and issuing ultimatums to the German government, but spending more of his time writing love notes to Edith. And it's all there in the Wilson papers. Anyway, so <laughs> what? No, wait. So this was uh, Anna Eleanor Roosevelt in the front seat, uh, and I had to change my topic. And oh, yeah. How much time do I have left? I've got lots more to say. Oh gosh. I, okay. One last bit of advice. If if I were, if, no, not. Oh, I know how I start on this. I was going to say, what would Franklin Roosevelt say to Barack Obama? Franklin Roosevelt is not here. So I'm here to say what Franklin Roosevelt would tell Barack Obama. 
But I gotta tell you that the message is unclear. I'm channeling, but the message is a little bit fuzzy, and it could go either way. The landmark reform of Roosevelt's New Deal was Social Security. This is the most popular, and to judge by its political popularity and its ongoing support, the most successful program, political program, government program in American history. Nothing like it. It has grown, it has become a mainstay, a part of the American political, economic, social firmament. It has never been seriously challenged. You will remember that after the 2004 election, George W. Bush toyed with the idea of, he wouldn't even utter the word privatizing, but that's what he was thinking about, privatizing part of Social Security, and he got slapped down right away. Americans love Social Security. Okay. This was the great reform of Roosevelt's New Deal. Barack Obama campaigned for years on a pledge to reform the American health care system. I have a hunch that if Barack Obama is thinking about his place in history, he's thinking that the one thing he wants to be remembered for, let's, assuming, let's assume that the economic situation works out, is reforming the health care system in the United States. And it will be to his administration what Social Security was to Roosevelt's administration. Now, the question is, and the advice that Barack Obama wants to know is, the counsel he needs to hear is, does he go for it now or does he wait? Does he strike while the opportunity is here or does he wait till the economy has settled down and then go for it then. Now, I have to tell you that this message that I'm getting from Franklin Roosevelt is not entirely clear. It's a little bit <laughs> ambiguous. Because on the one hand, Roosevelt understood that moments for changing the structure of the American political economy come very rarely in American history. The American political system has a genius, if you want to call it, maybe you want to call it an evil genius, for muddling through, for just going from the status quo and maybe wiggling a little bit at the margins, but not undertaking any serious major reform. The major reform opportunities only come in moments of crisis, when the status quo has been dealt such a blow that people are willing to reconsider things that they had accepted for a long time. And health care reform has been on the agenda of American politics since at least 1912. Theodore Roosevelt ran for president on the progressive ticket in 1912. And part of the progressive platform was national health insurance. Franklin Roosevelt initially included national health insurance with Social Security. But he decided to pull that out because he wasn't sure he could get it passed. And he thought that the Social Security system that did get through was a big enough bite out of the apple at that time. Harry Truman tried to get national health insurance passed. Lyndon Johnson thought about national health insurance but settled for Medicare, which is national health insurance for people 65 and older. The Clinton administration tried for national health insurance, or the equivalent, I mean, basically health care reform. And Barack Obama could very easily say, now is the moment. We can do it now because people realize some changes have to be made. And this would suggest 
Go for it now. Because the country is in, maybe it's in crisis, maybe it's in distress, but you've got this political mandate, your popular approval rating is sky high, Congress is willing to go along, the Republican opposition has been pushed to the side. If you're ever going to have a chance to do it, now's the time to do it. So part of Roosevelt's experience says, go for it now. But another part of Roosevelt's experience says, maybe not. The, the legislation of the 100 days, this was Roosevelt's third, first three months in office, the 100 days has become the standard for measuring presidencies. And actually, the 100 days became the 100 days only by accident. Roosevelt had no idea that this emergency session was going to last 100 days. He thought it was just going to last a week or two when he'd get his bank legislation, maybe a farm bill passed, and then he'd send everybody home. But the Congress liked so much what Roosevelt was sending. He said, well, boy, let's go for it now that we're here. And some of the legislation of the 100 days had a lasting effect on the American political system. I described the meltdown of the banking system during the beginning of 1933 and how Roosevelt had declared this national bank holiday. And we've seen nothing like it. Yes, the financial system is in trouble, but the only people who have lost money on banks are bank shareholders. Depositors haven't lost any money. Why not? Because of FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, you don't need to run down and get your money out of the bank because you know that if your bank closes, the federal government's going to pay off the amount that you had in there. And therefore, you just, hey, I'm not worried. The FDIC was one of the landmark pieces of New Deal legislation. It was passed in the 100 days. The Glass-Steagall Act. The Glass-Steagall Act, which prevented banks, commercial banks, from playing the stock market with their depositors' money, was another landmark piece of legislation and prevented anything like the great stock market crash of 1929. Until, ooh, what happened to Glass-Steagall? It was repealed in 1999. And a lot of people, I think, people are going to look back on that as kind of the the beginning of the debacle we're in now. Because financial institutions find themselves so far at leverage that when people don't pay them back, and the whole thing starts to melt down. OK, so Glass-Steagall, FDIC, a couple of other things were these big pieces of legislation that had a long-lasting impact. But much of the rest of the 100 days legislation, there were 15 major pieces of legislation. Some of them were quick fixes. The, CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was to put people to work, young people to work who didn't have jobs. Once the economy revived, there was no need for the CCC and it went out of business. Some aspects of the 100 days reform package were simply ill-advised. The NRA, the National Recovery Administration, passed by the NIR, the National Industrial Recovery Act, called for a cartelization of American, America's industrial economy with the government acting as the enforcer of these cartel arrangements. Roosevelt modeled this on the government's role during World War I, essentially commandeering the economy. And he thought this was the way of dealing it. But this was very much, as a consequence, what he had said in his inaugural address about treating this like a war, and therefore I need wartime powers. Well, the NRA was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1935. And Roosevelt took it amiss. But most people were kind of glad that the NRA was put out of its misery. Because it, by then, it seemed like a really bad idea. 
So some of the legislation of the 100 days was, well, I would say sound and lasting, and others was not so good. Social Security was not part of the 100 days package. Roosevelt understood that this is really a big deal, and we need to take our time with this. And he wanted it to, he wanted it to be aired before the American people. He wanted to make sure that when it was passed, it wasn't seen as something that was done in a rush, and it wasn't something that the Republicans foisted on the rest of the country. He wanted Americans to embrace this as their Social Security. We think of Social Security as primarily the system of public pensions. But in fact, Social Security was, Roosevelt was thinking really in terms of security. How you make people secure at a time when they're feeling really insecure. So it included unemployment insurance, it included disability insurance, survivor insurance, and all of this. Okay, so if you look at Roosevelt's experience with Social Security, that would seem to suggest that Barack Obama should not go for health care reform immediately. Deal with the economic crisis. Get yourself set up. Establish a level of credibility with the American people. And once you've got that credibility, maybe it means the economy turns around, maybe it means it's simple things that are simply stabilized. But once you've got that credibility, then move forward on what might well be the most important piece of structural legislation you will pass. So this is the problem with history, and this is the hard part of placing Barack Obama in history. If he listens to history out of one ear, then he'll say, go for it now, while you've got the opportunity. If he listens to another part of history, he'll say, wait a minute, maybe we better consolidate. Here's the problem with applying history the past to the present. Every moment in the present is like some moment in the past. And the more momentous we are at the present, the, more, the bigger the deal that's facing us now, then we can find parallels in the past. The trouble is the parallels are never exact. Everything in the present is like something in the past, but it's also unlike anything that happened before. And the hard part for not simply historians, but citizens, because one of the reasons we historians do what we do is to try to encourage citizens to take responsibility and think about the decisions they're going to make. The hard part is to figure out whether the current moment is more like the past or more unlike the past. Okay, having said that, I will say that the best way we can judge where Barack Obama will fit in history is to take our time wait and see, and if Glees invites me back 10 years from now, I'll tell you how not only it turned out, but I'll tell you why it had to turn out the way it did turn out. Thank you very much. Now, if I left any of those threads loose and you want to find out what I meant to say, then feel free to ask. But I have to caution you. I once had a math teacher who, um, they had a chalkboard, and he used to, have, he used to write with, uh, let's see, he wrote with his right hand, and he had an eraser in his left hand. And he wrote his notes with the right hand, and as soon as he wrote them, he erased them because he was very in a great hurry. And meanwhile, he was speaking. 
And sometimes the thing that he said, the things that he said, didn't match what he was writing on the board. <laughs> and so somebody asked, well, professor, um, when you write one thing and say something else, what are we responsible for? What you said or what you wrote? And he said, well, it's actually a little bit harder than that. You're responsible for what I meant to say, <laughs> even if I didn't. So, I may have meant to say, stop me if you want to ask me about it, feel free. Yes? You talked about Franklin Roosevelt's special ability to connect with the American people, the electorate. Could you also say that Andrew Jackson might have been the first president outside of Washington to do that, and Theodore Roosevelt? Can you, can you categorize presidents as those who were really special in the way they related to the, to the electorate? I think you can. The question is, can you characterize presidents in their ability to connect with the American people? And I think the answer is yes, you can. And I would argue that those presidents who were politically most successful during their time were the ones who were most successful at making that connection. Now, I have to, and I think it's, it's important that you started with Andrew Jackson, because before Jackson came along, this emotional connection between the president and the American people was much less important in, let's call it the era of federalism, starting with George Washington, but I would say even continuing through John Quincy Adams, who wasn't a federalist because the Federalist Party had disintegrated, but carried many of the same attitudes forward from his father, who was a federalist. There was, in that age, from the 1780s until the 1820s, American voters, and I should point out that American voters were not a majority of the American people by any stretch. In fact, they were not even a majority of adult white males. This was before the age of democracy. But those people who could vote were mostly property owners, and they were willing to vote for people that socially, maybe even intellectually, they considered above them. In fact, they didn't want to vote for their peers. They voted for George Washington, and then they voted for Thomas Jefferson, not because George Washington was like them, or because they thought they were the equal of Thomas Jefferson. They voted for them because these were the best people. And it was accepted that there were the best, and then there were the lesser types, and then there were the ordinary folks. But with Jackson, for the first time, a majority of adult white Americans can vote. And when they did, they increasingly wanted to vote for people, I won't say who were necessarily just like them, but people with whom they could identify in a certain important way. And I would argue that ever since Jackson, this ability of presidents to identify with the American people, or more importantly, the American people to identify with presidents and presidential candidates has been essential to political success. What was the I don't know, the most uh, serious criticism, or what Republicans hoped would be the most serious criticism of Barack Obama during the election campaign of last fall. There were various things, but the one that I remember, the one that stuck out, was that somehow he was an elitist. And you realize, and you have to think about this for a minute to realize, maybe it's a stretch here because 
the kid grew up with you know, no particular advantages, but he did, you know, he went, got an Ivy League education, he really made something himself. But it was that Ivy League education that, okay, so he was on the Harvard Law Review. So, well, what Republicans tried to do was portray Barack Obama as out of touch with ordinary Americans. Now, it didn't work and he got elected. But presidents like Jackson, presidents like Theodore Roosevelt, presidents like Franklin Roosevelt, at a particular moment, John Kennedy's an interesting, I don't know if he's exactly an exception to the rule because he did make a connection with a certain group, but it's, he, didn't, he didn't live long enough, he wasn't president long enough to know how things would really turn out. Ronald Reagan made this connection with the American people. And presidents who can do it find that all sorts of doors are open. Barack Obama has a serious challenge before him. Part of the serious challenge is the state of the American economy. But another part of the serious challenge, and this might sound a little bit odd, because some people might think, wait, this is part of what he's got going for him. No, part of his challenge is dealing with the Democrats in Congress. Because Franklin Roosevelt swept into office with the Democratic Congress on his coattails. And this is one of the reasons that Roosevelt got whatever he wanted out of that Democratic Congress. They knew they owed their majority to him. It was very clear from the moment he became president, from the moment he was elected, he was the leader of the Democratic Party. And because the Democratic Party was far and away the majority party, he was the focus of American politics. But with Barack Obama, he was preceded in Washington by Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate. And so Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader, can, they can make a credible claim that they're the ones who made Barack Obama possible rather than the other way around. Franklin Roosevelt was the one who made the Democratic majorities in the 1930s possible. And Harry Reid said in December that he didn't work for the President of the United States. Now, anyone who knows anything about American politics and the structure of American government knows that that's so obvious it doesn't need stating. So why did he say it? Well, to make clear that he wasn't going to take orders from Barack Obama. This is a challenge. And Barack Obama is, so far I think quite successfully, appealing over the heads of Congress to the American people. And his popular approval rating is indicating that he's making a pretty good success of it. Do you know what Barack Obama did this afternoon? Do you know where he was at about 3 o'clock this afternoon? He was in Burbank, California. And you know what he's going to be doing at 11.30 tonight? He's going to be on the Jay Leno Show. Okay. Now, the first sitting president to be on one of the late night, well, are they talk shows? Are they comedy shows? What are they? Well, it's, they're on their mix. And it's, it's an interesting effort to appeal to ordinary Americans. The audience for the Tonight Show, the Jay Leno Show, is about 5 million people. So Barack Obama will get to speak directly to 5 million people. Boy, he has a hard time getting that any other way. And also, Jay Leno's gonna, not going to ask him hard questions. <laughs> this isn't, I don't know, if, well, Leno isn't Jon Stewart. He's not Larry King, but, you know, because it's great for Leno, so it's going to be an easy audience. He's going to get to say what he wants to say. Now, it will be very interesting. You should all st we should all stay up and watch. If, actually, if you want to stick around, I'll keep talking for another three hours. We get the big screen. Okay? But anyway, it will be fascinating to see how he pulls this off. Because 
it's going to be a very delicate operation. The country is engaged in serious economic distress. And is Obama going to go yuck it up with Jay Leno? That could come across as being too shallow, being callous or something like that. On the other hand, he can't go on there doom and gloom because that will make things worse. One of the, one of the roles for the president is to be cheerleader-in-chief for the American economy. He can't exactly be a Jim Cramer, so, you know, a flat man for American capitalism, but economics is such that there is a great deal of wish fulfillment or fear fulfillment involved. And if you believe things are going to be better, if you're confident that you're going to get, you're going to keep your job or get a job, then maybe you're going to go buy that car that you've been putting off buying. And if you buy that car, that's one auto worker in Detroit who's going to get to keep his job. You know, multiplied by a lot of other people who are doing the same thing. If you don't think you're going to keep your job, you're not going to buy the car, and goodbye GM. I mean, this is the nature of things. So presidents have to put the best face on things. But it will, I think it's a great risk that Obama's going on Leno. It'll be very, very interesting to see how he pulls it off. And you can bet that all of his pollsters are going to be doing snap polls, and they're going to want to see what the reaction is. And the problem here is they're going to have to deal with the political pundits. They're going to have to deal with the TV critics. You know, how do you gauge the success of something like this? Is the stock market watching Leno tonight? <laughs> I don't know. It's never been done before. I'll give Obama credit for trying these new venues of reaching out to the American people. Roosevelt did it very successfully with radio and the fireside chats. Is the Tonight Show the equivalent of the fireside chats? I don't know, maybe. One of the striking things is the various different methods that Obama has used to reach out. He's been on YouTube. He has his weekly radio address. He had a signed editorial, signed op-ed piece in the Washington Post. First time, well, actually, Gleaves, we were talking about this, and Gleaves said that uh, Ronald Reagan did a piece. And what journal was that in? Human Life Review. Human Life Review. Not exactly the Washington Post, but nonetheless, <laughs> the president speaking in his own voice. So we'll see how it comes off. Obama understands that, a, well, just as Franklin Roosevelt said in that first fireside chat, without your support, we can accomplish nothing. With your support, we can accomplish everything. He understands that successful presidents have. Other questions? Yes, sir. First of all, great talk about Iowa, Lucy. <laughs> Thank you. Is, is there a bank holiday opportunity for Obama? President Obama has to deal with a financial system that in some ways is easier to handle than the banking system that Roosevelt had to deal with, but in some ways far harder. There's going to be a meeting next month. So next month? What are we in? We're in April. Uh, in April. There's a meeting of uh, the, the G20, I guess. They're all going to get together and discuss the world financial crisis. And the leaders of other countries are going to be looking to Barack Obama for, well, what are they going to be looking to him for? This is unclear. Leadership of some sort. Franklin Roosevelt had a similar opportunity in 1933. In the summer of 1933, nearly all the world's, what should we say, the, the G20 equivalent of its time met in London 
for what was called the London Monetary and Economic Conference. And it had to deal with a similar sort of meltdown of the world financial system. What was happening then was that countries who owed other countries money were defaulting. The United States in 1933 was the world's largest creditor. Everybody owed the United States money, but a lot of several countries announced we're not paying. We don't have the money to do it and you can't make us and therefore we're not going to. The parliaments of other countries, Congress of the United States, began passing protective legislation inhibiting trade. In the United States, the most important measure was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930, which caused a dramatic shrinking of international trade. And economists at the time realized that the United States needed to reach out to other countries. The United States was, first of all, the world's largest creditor. Secondly, as the world's largest exporter. The United States had lived by exports, and now exports weren't possible. So everybody looked to Franklin Roosevelt to provide leadership. And Roosevelt said, nope, we're not playing ball. He didn't go to the conference. That was OK. Heads of states didn't go to the conference. But he sent his Secretary of State and his Secretary of the Treasury. But he gave them no authority. He said, the United States will not participate in any international rescue operation. And this blew up the conference and caused hard feelings for the next 10 years around the world toward the United States. Roosevelt could have adopted an international approach to dealing with the Depression, to dealing with the financial crisis, but he did not. Now, why did he not? Because he knew that there was no support, no political support in the United States for pulling Britain, France's, Germany's chestnuts out of the fire. Doing good for other countries doesn't get you anywhere in American politics. Roosevelt had another idea. He wanted to devalue the US dollar. The prices had been plunging and he knew there was only the only way to get prices back up was to devalue the dollar. He was going to take the US off the gold standard, but he wasn't telling anybody just, just yet. So he knew that by signing on to an international agreement, and this was in the, the days of fixed exchange rates between different currencies. And the currencies were supposed to be linked to the gold standard. Uh, but gold had been kind of put by the wayside. But anyway, what everybody wanted was the U.S. to carry most of the burden of pulling the country, the world out of the depression. And Roosevelt said no, there wasn't the political support for it, and he had his own agenda. Now, what will Barack Obama do? <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. This is, another, this is another one where you can read history either way. Because Roosevelt's refusal to go along with an international res rescue operation was great politics in the United States. Roosevelt was re-elected overwhelmingly in 1936. And as much as you wish presidents and other politicians weren't influenced by the prospect of that election, it's in the nature of things that they always are. And so Roosevelt, after the 1936 election, said, I did just the right thing. However, in hindsight, one might say, boy, if the United States had cooperated with the rest of the world, maybe the world economy would have been less chaotic and maybe, and this was the thing that nobody could tell in 1933, maybe those unfortunate events in Europe that followed, the rise of Nazism, the descent of Europe into war, and the coming of World War II with all the tragedy that it brought, that might have been averted. Roosevelt couldn't see that. And nobody could. There are some people who worry, but anyway. So what does Barack Obama do? Well, in the first place, he has 
none of the authority that Roosevelt had because there are no fixed exchange rates anymore. The dollar goes up and down on its own. The markets decide. A lot of this authority has been ceded away. So the answer to your question is, well, the question was basically, um, is, does Obama have a greater or lesser problem dealing with the financial system than Roosevelt did? And the answer is, it's easier in certain respects uh, Main Street banks are not going under. Don't worry, you're not going to have to run down and get your deposits. But because international finance has become so globalized, the, if the U.S. bails out big banks in the United States, it will inevitably bail out a lot of foreign shareholders of those banks. And critics of the Obama administration will be able to say, why are you spending American money to bail out Germans and Chinese and Japanese investors. I thought this money was for the United States. And there's no good answer to that, because if you're going to bail out the bank, you're going to bail out pretty much everybody involved. So they, here's again. I wish I could say that history says this is the way to go. But history says maybe that way, maybe that way. Somebody had a question? Uh, yes, in the back end. Isn't that already happening, though, with the, the backlash on AIG? A lot of the money that's gone to AIG is going to international banks. Yeah, it's interesting to me, though, that the, the outcry against the AIG bailout at the moment is less about international banks than it's about the executives who are getting these million-dollar bonuses. And so the politics of all of this is somewhat unpredictable. Until quite recently, you know, the bankers were getting these big salaries. And, and when they say you get these bonuses, it's a little bit misleading. It's like, OK, the bonus is for good behavior, good performance. But in much of the financial industry, the bonus, as it's called, is really in lieu of salary. So the salary is relatively small, and you get your money all at the end. So it looks like a bonus. So, I mean, I don't know if bankers should be paid $100,000 a year or $50,000 a year or $2 million a year, but it's kind of the, the way the game is played. It's very interesting. Um, I, was, I have a friend in Austin who teaches at the University of Texas Law School. He's named Sanford Levinson, and he's a very distinguished constitutional, uh, a professor of constitutional law. And I asked him whether there was any way the government could get back these bonuses. And he said, well, you could just pass a tax bill that taxed them at 90%. And I said, is that really constitutional? Can you write a tax bill that targets a particular company? And he said, yeah, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't. Now, there are different, differing opinions. And so some people are reading that bar on bills of attainder. These are sort of private bills that declare particular actions to be crime, focused on individuals, as saying that this would prohibit it. So it remains an open question. But it is interesting to me that the outcry is much more against these perceived fat cat bankers, at least at the moment, than against the foreigners. Maybe, maybe it's because it's easier to personify the individuals who are gaining this advantage. One of the things Franklin Roosevelt understood, and this is not necessarily a compliment to either Roosevelt or the American political system, that the most effective presidents are the ones who most successfully identify and vilify their enemies. 
Andrew Jackson did it. Andrew Jackson targeted the Bank of the United States. When I said that these are the most successful leaders, sometimes their policies are disasters for the country. When Andrew Jackson took down the Bank of the United States, it was a victory for American democracy. The American people took control of the money system in the United States. It was a disaster for the American economy because the Bank of the United States was the equivalent of the Federal Reserve and the country needed something like that. And the economy spun out of control. So presidents, if they can identify individuals, then they can mobilize popular anger against these individuals. And for better or worse, I would say maybe at least partly for worse, individuals, ordinary people, often respond better. They act more out of anger than out of love or attraction. If you get people angry, then you can get them on your side if they can focus their anger at somebody else. So, you know, with Abraham Lincoln, it was the Confederacy. With Theodore Roosevelt, it's what he called the malefactors of great wealth. With Franklin Roosevelt, it was the economic royalists, as he called them, in the election of 1936. Until now, Barack Obama, until now Barack Obama has preached kind of the big tent. We're all in this together, it's going to unite. And that was the, the theme, the slogan of the campaign. Well, that's fine for a campaign, because in a campaign, you want to appear all things to all people. And the other slogan was, yes, we can. Well, that's when you're running for office. When you're governing, the operative, operative phrase is, no, you can't. <laughs> because when you govern, you have to choose. You can't say everybody can have everything. You have to say, yes, you get something and you don't. And that's when it becomes very tempting for a president to say, those are the bad people over there. Those are the ones who got us into this mess. And when Barack Obama talks about how his, the tax increases are only going to hit the top 5%, the people who make over $250,000 a year, it gets close to, it's starting to look like, sound like, what Franklin Roosevelt did unabashedly, and that was essentially to wage class warfare. To say it's the many, the good many of us, against those evil or short-sighted or selfish few. And it's a formula for, what should we say, short-term political success. But it doesn't do a whole lot for the general tone of American politics. So it will be interesting, interesting to me as a student of history, maybe a bit disturbing as a participant in all this, I'm a citizen as well, um, to see whether Barack Obama goes in that direction or not. Uh, do we need to call it quits? Let's call it quits. Okay. Thank you very much.